All right, let me, tell you about, uh, let me tell you about the church plant we've been involved in and give you some sense of it. Can I just say, at the very front, uh, one of the things we've been very aware of is God's grace in it all. And uh, it's been quite amazing watching his hand at work. Now, I've got to tell you, I come into this as someone who is uh, no great impressive person from the secular world who's just applied all of that into church life. Uh, I came into someone who loves Jesus and wanted to make a difference and stepped out and have been doing some things. So in 1996, we started EV Church, what was called Central Coast Evangelical Church back then, CCEC, but we found that non-Christians couldn't pronounce evangelical and so we dumped that and we now just call it EV. And EV is the first two letters of evangelical. It's not that hard. Uh, Now, so 1996, we started... We'd been dreaming about this plant for 20 years. So Kathy and I got married 25 years ago and I think on our honeymoon at a beach house in the region of the Central Coast, I said to Kathy, we're reading the local paper, and I said, this place is growing 5,000 people a year. The churches aren't keeping pace. We ought to plant a church here. This is 25 years ago. Kathy said, do what? <laughs> no one talked about church planting back then. And... We'd even picked out a spot, and by God's grace, that's pretty much where we landed uh, some years later. So it was a long time between the dream and the actual implementation of the dream. It's worth just plugging that, because I think we need to be aware sometimes these things do take a lot of time. Now, uh, this kind of church planning that we'd been involved in, it hadn't been done before in the way we did it. It hadn't been done uh, kind of in an independent way, in our world, uh, of course, the Apostle Paul was planting independent churches for a long time, but uh, in our context and situation, that hadn't been happening much. And as an independent work, we had to go through all kinds of issues in terms of insurance and marriage licensing and governance and constitution. We had to make up the whole thing from scratch. So it was a massive task, and we worked through all of that while we were planting. Uh, and we started without it in place, worked it as we went along, and can I just say to you, don't do it. <laughs> if you're going to start a church, come into the context of a church plant with as much of that stuff in place as you can. And one of the reasons we've started up Geneva is for that very purpose, to help you have the resources that you don't have to go through the pain that we all went through. Uh, it, it, it caused grief and anxiety that we just didn't need to have. Um, there was no one around to partner us in that kind of work, and we want to get that now going, which is Geneva. So what we did was, uh, in 1996, in February, I was working in a church, uh, running a Sunday night congregation, and part-time we started this second church about an hour north of where I was working previously. So I was doing two jobs. I was kind of like a tent maker. And I I parachuted in. We we call it a parachute church plant. I didn't know that's what I was doing back then, but that's what we now describe it as. That is to say, you go to a whole new region with nothing and no one. One young couple from the church that I was at said eventually after some time, we'd love to come and join you. They resigned their work and came and moved up onto the Central Coast and worked with us. There was four of us, plus two kids, six people. And we met in a lounge room. I began to make phone calls and connect with anyone I could. And I was like a detective. Uh, and I'd encourage you again to be like, any contact you hear, you chase it down. Do, do you know, you? Um, someone says, I've got a friend. Well, you find who that friend is... And you work out a best way to make connection with them and you pursue it all the way down to the end because every contact at that stage was gold. It was our life or death. 
So we pursued all of that. We, we were meeting in a small, in a house, and just studying the scriptures together. We realised after a very short time that the ability to reach people beyond our immediate network of friends was limited by being in a private home. So to move into a public space was important. We moved in, uh, into a local high school and met there for some eight months in an underground kind of scene. We, we didn't have a public launch. and I don't know if you've thought through this kind of uh, situation for church planning. We struck upon it. Uh, it's now kind of been a, made much more aware that you need a phase where you run meetings with the group that you're with, but not as a public church open now for anyone and everyone advertised as church. Because as soon as you do that, people who come, come with a whole range of expectations. This is a church. And so I expect it to have a children's ministry, I expect it to have groups, all kinds of things that it ought to have in place. And if you don't have that in place or of sufficient quality, people will come and not stick. And so to trade on that expectation, if you continue to set yourself up as for a period of time, no, no, we're, we're in the underground phase, we're just in the background work before the proper launch... People who come go, oh, I get that, you know, and I don't expect it all to be in place. You're more likely to keep them. Did you see how it works? So we ran that until August 96 and then uh, kicked off with our launch. Had a big public event. 30 Central Coast adults came. That's how big it was. And about 20 kids, 15 to 20 kids, turned up on that first Sunday. Um, now, during all of this time, I'm still running the church... Uh, elsewhere. So it's a fairly intense year and again I'd encourage you if you can do it don't do it like we did. <laughs> it is much better to be freed up to invest if you can. Now luxury is not always possible but it was a really hard year. We began the year with a, I had a full head of hair by the end of that year I look like I look now. Um, our third child was born in that year so we moved house, new job, New child, uh, friends all changed, had to find doctors, had to find schools. Very intense. Uh, it was quite an extraordinary time. We went through uh, a lot of controversy in addition to that. So the nature of the church plan I did caused a huge furor. As church planning tends to do, but ours had a little bit of an edge to it that was quite a lot more intense. So I was in every local paper... And the headlines were Sinister Minister with a picture of me, my wife and two kids at that stage. So my wife would go to the grocery store, ah, <laughs> Sinister Minister's wife. And so that was the kind of context we were doing this church plan in. We were on Four Corners. Do you remember is Four Corners still on too? But uh, we were on the third page of the Sydney Morning Herald. It was just, it was very intense. And uh, there were all kinds of rumours going around, um, it was quite an amazing time. One of the rumours was that I had to do a church plan as an independent because my wife was divorced and I couldn't stay in the denominations. Now, I checked with Cathy just to make sure whether that was true and uh, found out it wasn't. But that's the kind of, that was the context. When you plant a church, people around you will feel judged. You see, the, the churches that exist will feel like they're not doing a good enough job that you've got to come in and do a work that will improve what they're doing. They'll feel judged, but they'll feel threatened, of course. They'll feel like 
you know, we're struggling to scratch out this work in a difficult area, getting as many as we can. Competitions arrived. And it'll be fresh and romantic and exciting competition. And so there will be a natural fear. And we, as planters, we need to manage all of that process. So I met with church leaders uh, as much as I could and, and really affected no change by that meeting, I must say. But uh, I, I tried to get around and meet with the guys and encourage them and tell them a little bit what we're doing and so on. But uh, still there was a lot of anxiety and pain. Um, there we are. We, we, as people came to us from other churches, we would talk through with them about the need for them to go and talk to their leadership and do all of that pastoral work. I sent numbers of people back. Uh, if they were teaching the Bible where they were, I'd just go back. Uh, we did all of that process as well. Now, we worked hard with the core team in that underground phase. We, we picked up a bunch of people who didn't actually agree with the gospel. So pretty much don't do anything I did when we started. Find a core group of people who love Jesus the way you understand Jesus, who believe in faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone. We didn't have that. And so I remember one night um, in our, this is my launch team meeting, I was going through 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and talking about the new covenant and how the wonder of grace and how extraordinary that is and we're saved by grace alone. So I said, no, we're not. As long as it's grace, it doesn't matter what you include as well. Now, I was young. I mean, I was just shocked. I, no, 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 no. If it's not grace alone, it's not grace. No, 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 no. So this court, everyone argued this point with me. Um, and, and so I took them to Galatians 5 and said, but Paul says if you add works to grace, you've fallen away from grace. You've fallen away from Christ. No, 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 no. He didn't mean that. Man, man. So this was the group that we worked with. That was the night of the first conversion of our church plant too. And if I might just make a quick little moral of that story. If you want to see people converted, you need to say things that create tension and controversy. If you're not saying things in such a way that people get stirred up to be outraged, it's possible you're not saying the gospel clearly enough. Is that right? Because in the context of that, that one woman said to me afterwards, about three or four months later, she said that was the first time the penny dropped that we're saved by grace and not by what we do. And about two months later, I led her husband to the Lord in his lounge room, uh, and uh, they've been with us ever since. Wonderful. It was a tough group. Uh, we had um, people who didn't believe in the sovereignty of God. There were liberals. Uh, we had Pentecostals. There were some conservatives. We had brethren. We had a whole mix of people. Um, and we, we worked at kind of wrestling through those differences. I mean, Al Stewart is part of... Geneva Network, and he came up one night. I can't remember why, but he was he was up our place, and he said, "What do you?" And I said, "I'm heading out to do an issues night, and I'd I'd take a difficult issue uh, like the theology of the spirit or something like this." And he said, "What are you going to put out fires? Are you?" And I said, "No, no, no. I'm going out to start them because my view was that if you go out and actually strip back the surface of an issue that we all differ over and bring it out into the open." You have the ability then to engage with people's real thinking and bring about change. And so we did a whole lot of these issues nights to kind of bring it up, bring the scriptures to bear, wrestle and make considerable change. People did change. It was wonderful. Um, in all of this, I was seeking to set the agenda. 
I, I wasn't wanting to just respond to people. I was wanting to set the gospel agenda about what we were. We started our Sunday service, I say, in August 96, and we did that deliberately to come out of winter into spring. Timing-wise, I think, is helpful. If you're going to plant a church, it is helpful to do it into a season where the weather itself gives a sense of coming to life. If you start at March, April, you're pretty quick into winter and in Adelaide. That's just glorious and wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> Dark and depressing. So you, kinda, you, just, you, you want to choose your time. We, we came out into summer and that was helpful. Um, and uh, in February 97, so a few months later, we started our first night service. And I tell, you, I tell you why I started the night church? To hold on to the adolescent children of the morning church. Uh, I figured if we're going to build a church, one of the key ways to build in amongst family is to get their kids. The parents were loving the scriptures, but their kids had nowhere. So we started night church to provide a context for them. And it was hard, hard work. Uh, for about four or five years. Have you heard of the 80% rule? Just, just quickly, it's a little sociological dynamic that if you're in a building space that's uh, you're about 80% full, you won't grow. Like goldfish. Goldfish only grow as big as the pond you put them in kind of deal. Right? And it's, I mean, there's nothing magic. It's just, it just feels full. But there's a 50% rule that's along the same kind of lines. If you're in a facility where the group is smaller than 50%, it doesn't work either, generally speaking. You see. And we were in this school hall where the morning congregation was kind of 60, well, 55%, but the night congregation in the same hall was about 20%. And it just felt really depressing. Um, we should have moved into a smaller venue, but I thought there was more work and I wasn't up for more work, but we should have actually found teams and done it. Um, so four or five years, it was a long, hard slog. It's now kicked on, but... Um, Initially, it wasn't very attractive to the group that we were seeking to aim it for and uh, it took us a long way to re-engineer it. Now, during all of this time, we worked behind the scenes on governance. Uh, there were all kinds of strong competing views about, you know, we had people from Baptist background, Brethren background, Presbyterian background, Anglican background, all kinds of stuff. So we had to work all that through. Your theology of baptism, you know, who do you dunk, do you dip, do you sprinkle, all that kind of stuff. We had to go through all of that. Uh, and it took a lot of effort, took a lot of diplomacy, conflict resolution, change management, all of that. Welcome to church planting. It's a fantastic ministry. Now, here we are 15 years later, and it's a very different look. We, uh, let, oh, we've actually got some pictures. We're now meeting in a building. So this is the... Uh, we own five acres on the main drag on the central coast, and that is the youth hall uh, at the back of the site. Uh, the auditorium is at the front, will be at the front soon. Um, so that's a much better facility than school hall. Uh, I'll give you the next one. This is a baptism. We do baptisms twice a year, and uh, we get two, 300 people come along to baptisms. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's about 15 people are baptised each time. Uh, that's very different than what it was 15 years ago. Uh, but praise God, we uh, uh, 1,650 people are in church on a weekend now um, across five services. 
And so, by God's grace, a lot has happened in 15 years' time. In many ways, we've felt like kind of running alongside this train that's just getting faster and faster, as it goes downhill and trying to keep up with it, as God's been doing this wonderful work. We're seeing people converted week by week. Last year, we had a conversion a week. Um, And uh, it really is quite remarkable. There's the EV story. Let me pause. Do you want to ask anything about that? All right, does anyone have any questions for Andrew? Clayton. I'm just going to re- repeat the question for the recording, Andrew, if that's all right. I think they might. Uh, all right. Uh, the question was regarding evening church. Clayton, tell me if this is uh, incorrect. Uh, can you unpack a little bit more why you started the evening church uh, so early in the piece um, when it was potentially going to be so difficult and was so difficult? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, momentum's not simply it, but it was a large part of it. So... Uh, I was aware that, as I mentioned, with lots of... Uh, <clears throat> as a planter, so I was, what was I back then, 33? Typically, you pick up people about five years above and below you. So we'd aim for that segment of the community. And that age, you know, five years above, you're looking at kids in their you know, 10-year-old... Um, maybe 10 years above you, 15-year-old. That kind of starting to get that age group. And I was, I was conscious that as we picked up those kids and as the years rolled on, or those families, one father said to me, if, if you've got nothing here for the children, we can't stay. Now, it was a somewhat immature response. But I was wanting to reach immature people. I wasn't in it to reach the mature core people from other churches. I want to reach people who didn't know Christ or who were immature. And so I realised I had to do... I didn't want to do the consumer church, but I had to go some way towards meeting their evident needs. And I figured for the sake of a simple setup, and we only did a simple setup, and me just getting up and opening the scriptures with a guy who played the drums and slowed up and sped up and slowed up and sped up. It used to drive me insane. You know, tune, out of tune, all that kind of stuff in this big cold building. I just preached the word, the word. And I knew that in that context, I could capture the hearts of enough kids that a few more parents would stay. Not, I, I knew it wasn't going to become this, you know, fantastic work quickly, but it was just enough to secure another two, three families, which then became like barnacles on a boat. Now, once one barnacle catches on a boat, then a few more barnacles catch around it. So if I could just catch a few more, it would then momentum a little bit more. So it was hard work, but I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't not do it um, again. I, what I would do differently, I think, is just add a little more work and move it to another venue that's a bit smaller. We had venues around us. We could have done that quite easily. Um, I just hadn't thought into those dynamics enough. Um, yeah. one, one of the things that drove us, and I'll actually I'll come to this in a moment, was 
I want to say to people that the scriptures are in themselves so powerful and wonderfully exciting. If you just give me 45 minutes to let me unpack them for you, I'll change your life. So I kept wanting to do that. That's good. Uh, is there any other questions about EV's story? Andrew. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Uh, what service do we have? Are they driven by the dynamics, of the, uh, the social dynamics of the community? When we started our express target, we had quite clearly in our minds, we're going for the 35-year-old father of two kids. That's who we're after. And every person who came new to our church, I'd say, I want you to know that this is the church you're coming to. It's aiming for the 35-year-old with two kids, which therefore means we won't do the music that 60-year-old people love. You know, we won't sing as many hymns as quite many appreciate. We'll do things a little bit. It'll be louder and so on and so forth. I want you to know that's what you're coming to. We saved ourselves a lot of grief doing all of that. And I was actually talking to Paul, expressing some of the same ideas. And I'll, I'll come to that a little bit more. But So we had a particular target and... We started with a 9.30 service to reach that group, put on the night service to begin to reach the children as they were growing up and give them some connection there, um, began a small youth group. Start with three things. You know, your, your small group work, your children's ministry and your services. Don't try and do too many things. Um, so we started with those, those things in place. Um, as the morning service started to grow, I kept a very close watch on the attendance. And as I began to perceive that we were the building was becoming a limitation, we were heading to about four years in, and I wanted to plant another church. There was an area 20 minutes north of us, we needed another church. And so I, I just a bit of, I guess, business now, the, do you, if you took out 60 people from that congregation that's filling up the building, you'll reduce your problem with capacity. But for how long? You know, maybe a year, two years. But I had a bigger vision than that. <laughs> I didn't just want to save bias a couple of years. So what I decided to do, we split that morning service into 8.30, 10.30 to give us twice the capacity, 12 months before we planted so that when we came to plan, uh, people wouldn't think that's the solution, do you see? We went 8.30, 10.30 instead of 9.30, 11.30 because I wanted to make sure that people didn't think the new service was the poor relation. So what we decided to do is tear apart the existing services entirely and create two new services to plant two new churches at the same time. And... We worked the mechanics of it so that there was pretty much an equal split. Uh, I made sure they were both identical, still reaching 35-year-olds, two small kids. And the same preacher, the same music team, the same Sunday school ministry, everything identical, and then into night church. New church starts, 20 minutes north of us, we send off 60 people. Um, then we... As those two services grew, I was getting a lot of tension about music and we're in a high retirement area. 
I didn't start the church to reach retirees, but as we've grown capacity, it solved two problems. Uh, it saved a whole bunch of people from hell to begin to think about targeting retirees. And it saved a lot of grief about music in 8.30, 10.30 church. So we started an 8 o'clock service in a hall across the road. So I would preach there. At, the service would have one song I'd preach. And by the time I finished there, I could walk across the road. The 8.30 service would have had its music, announcements. I'd get there by 9 o'clock and I'd preach at 5 past 9 for the 8.30 service. And then 10.30, then 6.30. Um, and so 8 o'clock was geared, no children's ministry for retirees. Um, all of this time, I'm conscious there's a segment of the community that we're not connecting with, and it was the beach culture, the hardcore beach culture. And so I looked for about 10 years for the hardcore Christian godly man who would be part of the beach world. And eventually he turned up on our doorstep. And uh, so we worked him into a, a ministry that started a Saturday night service to reach that community. So there's the, the flavour of it, five services. One of the things we don't have in Adelaide is a, a surf culture. Um, there's only a couple of people here that go to churches that are anywhere near anything surfable. Um, you're about to start a session called Current Problems and Challenges Facing Evangelical Churches. Could you talk about the lack of surf here and anything else you want to talk about in that session? <laughs> That's Thanks, one of the problems, yes. Plenty on the Central Coast. And if you want a job, come up and see me. Okay, but we can find a ministry for you there. Um, let me take you through this. Uh, now, I, again, I'm going to take you through some of this stuff. We'll pause. I, I, look, I want to do what you want to have done. Okay? So if you want to take us off in some directions and chew into some areas, let's do that together. It's a small enough group that we can kind of we can pursue that. But I want to show you some research on evangelical churches. Now, this is some of the most comprehensive research on the health of reformed evangelical churches that's happened in Australia. It's quite remarkable. It's been done on the Anglican churches in Sydney. Now, I thought it's appropriate for us to look at here because no one here is a Sydney Anglican, are they? I look down on them from my heights way north. And so I figured none of us are there. We can just talk about them and not worry about them, yeah? Scott gives us an opportunity. We, 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 can, we can focus our attention, therefore, on this man here. But the rest of us are safe, okay? Um, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to take you through the situation uh, with these churches there. And if you're unaware, denominations around the country are in crisis. So the Pentecostals have hit plateau, I hear, this last 12 months. I don't know if Scott, you've heard anything else. The uh, Baptists in New South Wales and Queensland have plateaued. Uh, they're now drifting backwards. Uh, the Anglicans in Sydney have had some growth recently, but overall uh, it's very, very minor. And Presbyterians are growing, but from a very small base. The only work that's growing significantly at the present is the work of FIEC, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, of which I'm a part. Um, so th th things are pretty grim around the denominational circles. And I want to show you something of why it's happening. It's been identified that we've taken... We've accepted a line, it's called satisfactory underperformance. 
satisfactory underperformance. When churches aren't crashing and they're just moving along at a satisfactory level, they're not dead, but they're not exploding, we're satisfied with that level of underperformance. But when you look out on the community around us, now I haven't done all the stats around it, I'm sure someone here has. How many people go to church in Adelaide? Simple, (laughs) easy answer. About 4%. About 4%. Now, I love doing this. I I, I did this in... I I keep trying to help people in our church get this, and I I trust you've got it as well. If you heard there was a disease that had struck South Australia, every single person was dying, whether it's AIDS or something else, and there's there's a community within that group that has the cure, what percentage would you like to have to hear that that community with the cure has finally got to and brought kind of health to, what percentage of the population would you like to hear that they've got to for you to realise or feel like at least we're now breaking the back of it? 70%? 50% maybe? 60 I've never heard anyone say 4%. Do you know what I mean? Now, in our region, it's 2%. The gospel has made inroads into 2% of the population. 98% of people are going to hell. If you haven't got the sense of the drastic, absolute, urgent need to bring the gospel to our community, you've not stepped out of your church to see what's happening. Satisfactory underperformance must be shot. It's got to be put to death. Um, now, uh, one of the things we need to do to actually deal with that satisfactory is start telling the truth to each other about what's actually happening in churches and facing the truth of these things. There are some churches that are growing, um, but most are not. Now, let me run you through this story. And I'm going to suggest to you, it, it, there's a bunch of slides... I'm going to suggest you take some notes and if this twigs any thoughts that you want to pursue or any comments you want to make, write them down because I want us to chew together over this and I'm going to come in the last session and unpack some things I think are the way forward for us. All right? Um, So let me take you through this story. Now, I'm sorry that's a bit small, but let let me see if I can pull this off. Uh, Is this the first slide? Thank you. Okay, cool. Uh, what, what it indicates is that all the churches in the country are plateaued or heading downwards. And it's interesting, I mean, you start to look at the stats. There, there's where we can be now, actually tell where there's a change happened. As we go through, we'll see a little bit more about... Keep pushing us down. I'm going to run through this pretty quick. Um, uh, there is still a spiritual concern in the community. So although you can see the ages, dark blue is younger... So you've got uh, 15 to 29 up to the oldest age there. What you see is as the ages run through, um, obviously there's some who strongly agree that there's something beyond life that makes sense of it all. Right? But as you run through, you actually find a lot, of the, a lot of the younger people and older people agree with that statement still. And in fact, are somewhat indifferent. There's not 
a massive skewing down this end. What it says in our community, there are still a lot of people in various age groups who are saying there's something beyond. Keep clicking through. Uh, a lot of people are still going to church in Australia. So when you compare it to other events, uh, cinema, sporting events, um, going to the garden, library, blah, 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 you've got regular church attendance. When you, when you t- define regular not as weekly but monthly or, or less, you've still got a massive group amongst Catholic and Protestant who are going to church, 40%. Okay? Keep clicking through. Uh, but what's interesting is uh, that, you, that you still you get... You, 74% of Australians still believe there's a God, 53 heaven, life after death, 45%. 43% believe in the resurrection. These are extraordinary statistics about the state of things in Australia. Uh, but church attendance is, is falling down. Keep coming through. Now, interesting to pursue in Sydney at least... What's driven this decline? Suddenly it's happened. Do you see? So that as you get older, this is the ages through to 60, 70, 80 and so on. Uh, lots of people are going to church, or a higher percentage, 20% or so. As you go back down through the ages, it's dropped suddenly at the 30 and below age group. Why there? Keep going through. One of the suggestions is, and this is the latest analysis, is that it's because of something that's happened to our families. So when divorce came in, no-fault divorce... Uh, there was a spike, obviously, in divorces and a greater sense of broken home. And one of the analyses that's been done is the suggestion that that's actually... What's happening is that our children are growing up... Uh, a high proportion of kids are growing up in homes without a father and a mother in a stable environment. Previously, that stable environment led to church attendance, or at least a high proportion. But the suggestion is that with the breakdown of that family it's actually impacted one of the pipelines into ongoing growth in church life, which is kids growing up in church. Mother and father used to bring them to church. Now with a split, mum does, but the kids don't anymore, do you see? Keep clicking through. And what's been worked? 92% correlation between uh, attendance and births in stable marriages. Keep clicking through. Uh, The other thing you find is that you've got... Uh, which philosophy of life has the most influence on how you live today? You've got amongst younger people, it is a lower proportion, but as you go along, really where the highest growth is, is confusion. Do you see? It's not like people, as they're younger, have stepped out of faith into something else. It's rather they've stepped out of that into, I don't know now. (laughs) you see? Keep clicking through. Um, one of the other things that's come out, certainly in Sydney, is that youth and the growth in youth and the connection to youth and growing uh, ministries amongst youth is having a massive uh, power to grow church life. Keep clicking through. And importantly, uh, youth, adolescence, is a much longer part of our lives. So, 1929, 1969, we didn't have the teenage years and adolescent years. 69, we had teenage years. Now we've got adolescence, which means right up until 30, we've got people living as adolescents, which when you tie it into the whole youth dynamic, means you've got the power to actually engage in youth in a more effective way for longer, do you see? Which, which if I might just, ties into night service. You see? One of the reasons to, to drive it. 
Um, uh, you've got a lot of people coming back to church as they get older. And as you get older, less are coming to church as first-timers. People who switch, again, it's age-dependent. Keep flipping through. Um, now, this is people who are going to services. 52% never go to church, or practically never. But less than once a year, 8%. Once or twice a year, 12%. Several times, what's that, 8%, 3% once a month, 4% two or three times a month, what's this, 9% once a week. 48% of the population is having some contact with church, however small. Now you can see how you can, you can go the glass half empty, the glass half full at this point, can't you? 52% never go to church, there's the glass half empty. 48% have some contact with church. Now, the stated reasons for not going to church. The biggest one, 42%, is boring, unfulfilling church services. Boring, unfulfilling church services. Um, yeah, and various other stats. You prefer to do other things. My beliefs are too weak and so on and so forth. Uh, now, I found this particularly extraordinary. What percentage of people are willing to accept an invitation? Uh, yes, 16%, unsure, 32%, only 41 said no. There's a lot out of people out there, like water polo. <laughs> They're not adverse to being invited. And if you persist in a gracious way, people will come to church. Um, let's keep moving. Uh, now... I was going to take you through some of the detail here, but... Oh, sorry, actually, you drop back. So, I don't, you can't see these numbers at all, can you? But uh, one of the things... This is the um, objections that stop people coming across age groups. And one of the things, if you could see it, I'm sorry, but as you go down through the numbers, you've got, you know, in the 14s, low, low numbers, 23. Low numbers, 19, 17, 17. Low numbers. And it pretty much reflects all the way through the age groups. What are these ones that jump up? Problem of suffering, truth of the Bible, good but not for me. What does that tell you about growing a church? If you're going to tap into people out there who have some interest, who have come along a few times a year, what have you got to be dealing with, do you see? Um, extraordinary thing that came through, in Sydney at least, is that there are a lot of visitors who are coming into churches. Um, it, uh, you've got people who are coming um, to special services at least once, a massive proportion, monthly and so on. What it says is that of that 48%, you've got a lot of people who are interested in coming to churches who are coming to churches at some point in their life and circumstance. Um, and sadly, though, the number that stay to become regular and frequent members is very low. So every, of every 100 people... You've got only two, two and a half who come, who are new, who are there out of that 100 people in a year, five or six who switch from another denomination, and then you've got a lot of people who have drifted or dropped out. Friends, that is not a lot of people who are sticking. Keep going. Uh, 
Um, there's, a, there's a problem amongst leadership. You ready for this one? Uh, this is a, it's a little wheel that tries to bring in lots of information into one picture. Um, National Church Life Survey, that's the data this has been taken from. And you've got a, kind of like a pie chart here. The outside line is if a person says the small groups in this church are going fantastically, they, they put their result here. 50% is that line in the middle. All right? Uh, and you've got a whole bunch of things uh, that, that run along here. So people in Sydney diocese are saying that uh, the church is inspiring Christian. All right? But what they're saying is very low is they're not aware of uh, a committed plan in the church or a commitment to a plan in the church across 250 churches in Sydney. Very low. Down here, when they register, they indicate whether there's any personal growth this year, it's less, it's 40%. Very low. Keep clicking through. But what they found was, in churches that have an annual growth of 10%, there is actually a disproportionate high registering of small group life being healthy for them and much personal growth. Do you see the difference? Keep clicking through. And where leaders have a clarity of purpose and are good at moving to action, congregations thrive. So 28% where leadership has strong clarity of purpose is the average growth rate over a five-year period. Compared to there's no leadership, people don't have strong sense of clarity of purpose. Where leadership is strong in moving to action, where leadership is not strong in moving to action. Do you get it? Have you heard the three things about leadership that you've got to pull off? I'll give them to you. Uh, it's vision, strategy, implementation. Leaders have got to do those three things. They've got, to, they've got to know where they're going, have a clarity of understanding where I'm going, have the ability then to work out an action plan to get there, and then have the disciplined ability to implement that strategy plan. We fail on those three, or all three, one of those three. And it has an impact on the growth. Then you add into that the problem of burnout. Uh, then you add p people feel ill-prepared, which is just a plug for what we're trying to do here, actually. Uh, we want you to go into a church plant, if that's what God is, is moving you towards, and give you some preparation for it, some support and backup for it. Makes a huge difference. Um, let's, we'll hold on that now. I'll come back to that in a second. Friends, there's a quick rundown. Now... I, now, I don't know what's going through your head, but when I saw this stuff, I was thinking a million things. I was planning a hundred other things. Let me just tap into a couple of things here. A very gifted minister told me 20 years ago that, Andrew, you can't expect more than 10% of your congregation to ever know what you're about. Um, now, he was expressing many years of pastoral frustration and so on and so forth. <laughs> and I got it, you know, like I got it. But I went away from that determined to make sure a church I was involved in never only had 10% who got it. Do you see? And so this is, I actually do this. I, I, I help people think about how I preach in church. And um, you've, got, you, you've got sort of, if this is preaching level, 
all the way up here. Let's, let's I don't know, call it up to 100%, which, I don't know, it's an hour. Heavy-duty stuff. Uh, down here is um, sermon light. Uh, you, you, um, you've got this uh, kind of... Um, so kind of theological content over time. You've got this... I, I think you've kind of got a, like, a graph like this with people's ability and capacity. Um, so, so we'll run along here. The, the, I think this graph works. Tell me later. But I, if you've got people's capacity, you've got some people who can only cope with light. You know, then you've got more people who are better and more able. Yeah, you've got that kind of a... Where do you pitch your sermons? You've got to think that through. Um, do, do, um, uh, it actually goes the other way, doesn't it? Um, so less people up this end, more people up this end. Is that right? So if you preach lighter, you'll get more people. Now, I'll have to rethink the graph for me, if you do that for me. But uh, where do you pitch it? Do you, do you pitch it to try and get you know, most people or do you pitch it higher to get fewer people? Where are you going to pitch? We'll come back to it and we'll work out a better graph. One of the great blessings of the work we do is that I have 45 minutes, 50 minutes often of vision casting. Every week you open the scriptures is a vision casting session. Every single week. And if you use it simply to explain the syntax and grammar of a verse, you've wasted a public event. Now, I'm all for syntax and grammar. I think that's important to understand the scriptures. But every time I preach the gospel, every time I preach the scriptures... I'm seeking to declare the gospel and the agenda that God's about. And so I don't know if you're coming to anything that I'm doing the next weekend, but I'm just going to do the same thing every talk. <laughs> Sorry. But I'll be saying the same stuff every single time. And that's all I do. For, for mine, it's the vision custom. And so do you need to have vision statements and mission statements and so on? Uh, we had a very minimalistic one to start with. And yet... And we, never, we almost never used it. But people tell me that there was a very clear sense that this church was doing what it was doing, going where it was going, it was about... They had that sense. Now, how did that happen? I think two things. We had monthly newcomer nights. Every person new to our church was invited to a monthly event at supper at my place in the first eight years. We've only just stopped doing them in our place. Um, nine years. Um, every month I would outline the vision of church. We're aiming at 35-year-olds. We're a lifeboat. Have you heard the lifeboat illustration? I'd do this kind of stuff all the time. And I'd say, if you're coming to this church because you want a small local church that's comfortable for you, you don't know what we're about, here's what we understand the gospel to be, this is a lifeboat in an ocean of 300,000 drowning people, you cannot just think of fitting as many seats are in the lifeboat and that being it. You've got to pack as many people in as you can because it's so... You know, I go through all that kind of story. And the idea was to keep... to make sure everyone who came into our church came in understanding who and what we were. So every month I was doing that with new people. Then we'd have once-a-term lunches for new people. I'd do it all again in a different guise and context. In the first five years of church, I would spend... For the first three years, every year I preached on the purposes of church. So every February or so, I'd do a five-week series on the purposes of church to vision cast. 
And then after about three years, I did it every two years. And now I've shifted that to a new course that we run called EV Startup. But all of that was quite powerful and significant. But, but don't underestimate the power of the pulpit every time you get up. It says what you are and what you're about. I think you can over-vision cast. Uh, I have heard friends tell me that they're in churches where the man every month would give the vision again out of the Nehemiah principle. And they were just vision sick. <laughs> you know, it's just the same. Here he goes again. You've got to watch that. 